You're listening to Policy Room by SPRF. Hello, everyone. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Policy Room by SPRF. As India emerges from the ravages of the COVID-19 pandemic, we remain hopeful for a better tomorrow and an all-inclusive post-pandemic recovery. The Union Budget 2021-22 is going to be instrumental in this process. And today we are conversing with Dr. Pranab Sen on how the upcoming budget can spearhead the economic revival that India needs. Dr. Pranab Sen is the program director at the International Growth Center India program. He has held positions as the first chief statistician of India, principal advisor power and energy at the government of India's planning commission and secretary at Ministry of Statistics and Program Implementation. He was also the principal author and coordinator for India's eighth, ninth and 10th five-year plans. He specializes in open economy, macroeconomic systems, international economics and public finance. Welcome to our podcast, sir. We are very excited to have you here. Thank you, Akshita. It's a pleasure to be here. Okay. I think the first thing we'd want to know is, so on one hand, COVID-19 has revealed several flaws in our economy and policies that needs to be corrected. On the other hand, with the current recession, resource mobilization has become really hard for the government. So this was also happening before the pandemic and disinvestment became like a go-to option because of the slow growth in tax revenue. So in light of the upcoming budget 21, what do you think are the most crucial pain points that India will need to prioritize? And then how will the disinvestment targets change? Will it be as high as before? Or do we expect to change now? Let me start, Achita, with the disinvestment issue. And then we can go to the larger budget problem. As far as disinvestment is concerned, just to treat disinvestment as a source of funding is a bad idea. It's a really, really bad idea. And let me try and explain why. You know, at the end of the day, what disinvestment does is that it involves an exchange of assets. That is assets which are currently held by the government are then sold to the private uh, sector. Now, if you think about it that way, any disinvestment program means that a certain amount of money is being taken away from new investments to acquiring old assets, right? Which means that if the total amount of investable funds in the country is fixed, you would have less new investments happening. So disinvestments are a great idea when we are in a situation where there is, you know, a very, very high demand for, uh, for new investments happening, you know, people are queuing up to make new investments. Um, do disinvestments at that time, it's fine. But when we are in a situation that we are in today, where there is absolutely no evidence of new investors wanting to come in, uh, disinvestment will simply reduce that even further. So at this point of time, disinvestment is just a bad idea. 
and it shouldn't even be considered because the damage it can do is actually quite large. So if we give, say that that's not going to happen or should not happen, then as far as the budget is concerned, the government has to be very clear as to what the budget seeks to do. There are clearly real, really big issues on the demand side of the economy. At the moment, we do know that from, let's say, end of March onwards till, till now, the country has lost somewhere around 20 lakh crores relative to last year. Okay. Now of that 20 lakh crores, about, uh, about 5 lakh crores would be government revenues. About 3 lakh crores would be corporate profits. And about 12 lakh crores would be reduced income with households. So as we go forward, it means that there is going to be less money available with households to consume. Up to a point, households will make this up by essentially bringing down their savings, which means that there will be less resources left available for investment. At another level, what will, uh, will happen is that the pace of recovery will be very, very slow. Uh, because people will start rebuilding their savings as their income flows restart. Now, this is particularly important since COVID has not gone away. And whatever the government may say, there is enough evidence that people have of state governments doing episodic lockdowns in various places. And no person would want to be in a situation where because of a lockdown, his or her income gets stopped and then she doesn't have anything to fall back upon. The second part of the issue is that at the moment, nobody wants to create new capacity through new investments. Absolutely nobody. There is so much excess capacity in the system uh, that uh, investors are not going to be rushing in. So the demand side is badly hit. And it is the government's job to basically make sure that this is addressed through the budget. Directly addressing the consumer demand problem at this stage is not such a great idea because it's better for the government to focus on reviving uh, production activities, so income flows start. But the government will have to take care of the poor people who have lost their jobs and are not being able to get jobs. And there is plenty of evidence that there, there are a lot of people of that kind. So the focus really needs to be on investments and building up investor confidence so that new investors come in, existing companies open up production and so on and so forth. And possibly the best way to do this would be to essentially give a major push to what the government does the best, which is to focus on infrastructure spending and to give a huge increase in infrastructure spend. 
the point is that you cannot ignore the nature of the problem that we are facing. So if you think about infrastructure, uh, you have various kinds. So you have very large projects which are extremely uh, sort of capital intensive. They are mechanized processes. Uh, those have very little multiplier effects because most of the, the, the resources essentially go to capital rather than in generating employment. So the government really should be looking much more carefully at relatively small localized kinds of infrastructure. So things like rural roads, for instance, is an excellent example. Rural and even urban housing is, is very good. So, but these have to be looked at in terms of number one, how labor intensive are they? And number two, how quickly can you get them off the ground? Because there's no point having a big project where it's going to take you a year, year and a half to two years just to do the preparatory work. So the focus should be on that. As far as the resources are concerned, let's accept facts. So long as GDP is depressed, government resources will be down because tax collections will be impacted. We've already seen a massive decrease in, in government taxes, and this is going to hang around for a while. So the government will have to expand its fiscal deficit. I don't think there is any choice in that matter. In the current year, the fiscal deficit is going to be expanded for reasons which are not within the control of the government. And it's going to be a fairly large fiscal deficit. So at the moment, the estimates are the original, uh, the budgeted was three and a half percent of GDP. It's probably going to be closer to six, six and a half percent. The important thing here is not the current year's fiscal deficit, but the fiscal deficit that's projected in the budget. Because if the government is to try and uh, give a momentum to both investment spending and consumer spending, then the budget deficit will have to be fairly substantial. We cannot go back to 3.5% of GDP next year. If we do, then the recovery process will get stalled at that stage itself. The second element is that investments and investors require a certain degree of confidence into the longer term. You know, consumers are much more reactive. So if they have income today, they'll spend it today. But investors are not like that. What they want to see is what will be the situation in the country two, three years down the road when their investments actually mature and come into production. And unless they have confidence that the economy will be recovering strongly, they will simply not come in. So the government should, whether it will or not, I do not know, but it should actually come up with at least a three-year fiscal roadmap uh, and explain to the investors that we are going to be uh, backing up the economy for at least the next three years. And we will worry about uh, you know, 
the fiscal deficit after that. All right. Yes. And in fact, I think that if the government disinvests, then the private investors will feel or they'll be in doubt whether they should invest or not. In fact, government investing will actually boost private investment. Uh, am I right here? That's right. No. And what happens with the disinvestment is when you disinvest, you are actually eating into the savings that would have otherwise gone into new investments. So you're not creating new capacity. Just existing capacity is changing hands, but your savings are getting eaten up. Right, right. And then investing or infrastructure spending, especially those areas which are labor intensive, would also help yeah. boost demand and people to earn money. So here, this reminds me of the whole uh, talk that is happening right now around urban Narega. So Narega is there, but it's for more rural population. Do you think that uh, a Narega for the urban population of some kind would, is something that the government would uh, be enthusiastic about, something they'd want to do, and will it help? It should help. Um, you know, the experience with Narega, which is a rural employment guarantee program, has been extremely positive. You know, everybody thinks of it essentially as a social security uh, activity. But the impact of Narega has been much more substantive than that. And I don't think people fully understand this. So what Narega does is that it provides a backstop. That is, if something goes wrong, the rural uh, population has Narega to fall back upon. Now, what this does in effect is it enables farmers to take far greater risks. So if you look at the diversification of Indian agriculture, which we've been talking for the last 35 years, really started taking off after Narega was implemented, which is the last 15 years or so. And the reason for it is that, that Narega was there. So if the farmer was taking a risk in introducing a new crop, which he hadn't uh, done before, even if the crop failed, he knew that he could turn to Narega. So it enhances the risk-taking ability of the rural population. Something is similar in the urban areas as well. And uh, urban version of Narega in itself is an extremely good idea. The reason it isn't there is people haven't actually been able to figure out what should be the nature of that, that scheme. The reason is that in the rural areas, there are lots of infrastructure work, small infrastructure work that can be done through Narega. In urban areas, that's not so obvious. Um, so there are now proposals that people are, are making as to how it can be done. Jean Dress has a proposal called Do It. Uh, but these things will have to be thought through and thought through very carefully. Um, because it's really in the design of the, the scheme that its success will depend. But whether we need it or not, I think we certainly need it. Uh, urban unemployment is by and large a far more serious issue, particularly now 
because COVID has actually hit urban employment much more than it has hurt uh, rural employment. So I think the, that working on something like an urban version of Narega is a great idea, but uh, I, I have a feeling that the design issues may be problematic. Yes, yes, absolutely, sir. And now that you've talked about uh, the farmer protests and farmers and agriculture in general, so in the backdrop of the nationwide protests that we are seeing right now, agriculture is being seen as a bright spot that can drive post-pandemic recovery because even when um, the economy was not doing so well in quarter one, the agricultural sector saw a growth of 3.4% at constant prices. So do you think that agriculture can be a rescue and manage to compensate for the downturn that the rest of the economy is seeing? Or are we missing the big picture here? Are we mistaken somewhere here? No, you know, you're not missing the big picture. Rural India is doing far better than urban India. I mean, let's be very clear. But we need to go a little bit further. You know, 3.4% growth in agriculture is no great shakes. I mean, you know, our agricultural growth has always hung around somewhere between two and a half to three and a half percent growth annually. So it's not, not something which is really, really unusual. So everybody keeps talking about agriculture, but I think the much more important issue is if you really look at what the government has done up to now in terms of income support, it has all been rural. So just to give you two examples, the front loading of the PM Kisan payouts injected income into rural India, to the farmers in fact. The transfer of Jandhan money, uh, of uh, money into the Jandhan accounts was also largely rural. The um, new the Rozgar Yojana that the government did, which is uh, for the, the migrant labor, is also rural. The additional payments for Narega, also rural. So all the government uh, policies have essentially been directed towards rural India. So with a good agricultural performance, when all of this government support is coming in, what has happened is agricultural prices have held up. Otherwise, what you could have seen was agricultural prices dropping and the farmers actually suffering because of excess production. But the point is that the same kind of support has not been provided to urban India. Now to expect that rural India is going to generate so much demand to overturn the slowdown in the urban area, I think is asking for too much. We know what the, the uh, expenditure pattern of our rural population is. It's much more food focused with their purchases of uh, of urban produced goods and services is relatively less. So it's going to add a certain amount to, to demand for urban products, but it's not going to be that much. But the rural economy is doing relatively well, and that's a good thing.
but it doesn't solve the urban problem. Absolutely, sir. I mean, to expect the, that the revival of the rural economy would take care of the entire economy is, is a bit uh, far-fetched. Um, so, so private consumption was already on a decline before the pandemic hit, and everyone knows that. And its revival has now become very essential because it's almost 60% of India's nominal GDP. So at a time, as you, as you mentioned, that people are bleeding out their savings here, and the government's economic recovery plan, for the most part, has been centered on improving access to credit as against cash transfers. So to what extent do you think that this easier credit availability is going to impact consumer spending in India in the, in the current context? And do you expect the government to increase allocation towards cash transfer schemes in the new budget? Well, Akshita, whether or not the credit that has been provided will help demand, that is not the objective to begin with. Most of the credit that has been extended was to ensure that businesses did not close down and that they had sufficient uh, money available to restart as the demand picks up. So it's really directed not so much towards demand as towards ensuring that the supply side did not collapse. All right. So don't think of the, the credit being as anything that adds to the demand side at all. That's not its objective and that is not uh, uh, and we should not expect that from, from it. Uh, but that was required at that stage, even when demand wasn't there. If companies closed down, those capacities would simply disappear. And even when demand revived, uh, those capacities may not be able to come back. So the whole credit was directed to, to that end. But as far as the demand side is concerned, Concerned, as I said, that you know, the government will have to <coughs> prop up the demand side. I don't think there's a choice. The point is, how do you do it? Do you do it through cash transfers, or do you do it through infrastructural investments that I've been talking about? Hmm? Cash transfers tend to have relatively low multipliers. The government has already made the point that they don't want to do cash transfers simply because people are saving the money. And as I said, people will save the money because the levels of uncertainty continue to be very high because COVID hasn't gone away anywhere. In fact, it's, it's all over the country now. So as a result of that, the multiplier effect of transfers are going to be weak. And so transfers should simply be limited to those who are completely destitute. It shouldn't become the principal vehicle for boosting demand. The principal vehicle should be uh, public investments in small infrastructure projects all across the country, which has very, very large multiplier effects. All right, sir. So I think here infrastructure investments become very important to even revive the economy then. Yes. Okay, okay. So um, talking about um, 
cash transfer schemes and as you said the destitute definitely would need it and relief measures so we know that recently there have been instances of data suppressing and no records being available on migrant debts or job losses so do you think that this absence of data should be a reason for inaction so how can this lack of reliable data impact budget allocations for the needed relief measures that you were talking about that the poor people might need it so how would the unavailability of data impact that um actually there are two things and which we should not confuse there is an issue of data uh, which is very important for determining the nature of the policy what kind of policy you should implement and there is the issue then of targeting which depends upon a completely different type of information that's not data per se because you're then having to identify people so for instance trying to identify who is a migrant and where is he located and how do i get assistance out to him is not in and of itself a data problem it's really a problem of registration and verification uh so look at them separately because you're talking about two very different things but whether the government should be uh you know increasing its fiscal deficit by 2% of gdp or by 5% of gdp that is something that can be answered through data and it's not that we don't have data the data does exist the government has it some of it is has been suppressed uh but not all of it and you know just recently we had the chief economic advisor uh who uh, has uh demanded that the household consumption expenditure data for 2017-18 should be released which it was suppressed by the government earlier but now he's saying it should be released so the, the government does understand the importance of data um and the simple fact of the matter is that the government has the data so <laughs> whether they release it or not i think is less important and what's more important is whether they use it or not themselves even without releasing it all right so then for the budget to be able to target the populations that need uh, monetary support or who need relief measures is sort of unrelated to the fact that there is there's some data here and there which wasn't available uh, just after the lockdown when a lot of things started happening that's it that's correct okay. so the okay, data yeah. will the data will be able to give you that so many people uh, lost their jobs in urban india let us say but who those people are where they are located that the normal data will not give you for that you need a different system and that's an administrative system rather than a statistical system okay okay i think this gave me a fresh perspective on this uh uh matter okay um so so we do understand that the union budget 21 is going to be a really important one especially important one and so what would your recommendation be and i know that you have mentioned a lot of uh, things that the government should be doing including infrastructure spending and improving the uh, in investment environment in the country so 
apart from that or maybe if you if you want to speak more on that what is your recommendation to the government and how do you think that they should via the budget put the best step forward in planning and reviving the economy and as you said the fiscal deficit can rise i mean we can give it uh, that flexibility for now so what what is your recommendation what are the final suggestions that you might want to give well my recommendations would be first of all do not be in a hurry to get into a fiscal correction mode fiscal correction is going to happen in any case pretty much by itself as the economy recovers right it does not need the government to really compress its expenditures compressing expenditures will help the fiscal deficit come down faster at one level but what it will also do is it will slow down the process of recovery so my first advice is please do not go in for uh, expenditure compression allow the natural processes of gdp growth to take care of the fiscal deficit that's number 1 number 2 keeping in mind investor confidence please along with the budget give a three year game plan so that people get the confidence and the assurance that the government will stand behind them when they start investing in new projects my third advice would be that this is not the time to tinker with taxes because any tinkering with taxes always creates new levels of uncertainty and where the levels of uncertainty are already so high because of uh, the disease and the pandemic you don't want to introduce any new source of uh, of uncertainty in the system so these would be my three broad advice along with what we talked about in terms of infrastructure uh, spending all right sir and i think that uh, the last point about not create trying to create any more uncertainty is something that the government uh, must keep in mind because it's already as much as it can be i think that brings us to the end of the podcast and everything that i had to ask you and thank you so much sir i think this podcast has been extremely insightful especially for me i come from an economics background and there were a lot of things that i feel like i knew but then when he said it i was like okay this this makes sense right now and thank you for providing us with um, the answers that we were looking for and also you gave us plenty to think about also a number of followers on our social media we did ask them uh, what do you want to ask dr pranav sen so even they had certain themes that they mentioned and we have tried to incorporate it so even for our listeners i think this will be very very um, insightful uh, is there anything else uh, that you would uh, want to add to say conclude to our discussion or if you want to shed some light on any other thing which you think is important but i didn't ask you you might yes i think there is i think the one thing that this particular incident has taught us is 
that we need to be able to disaster proof our information systems. Because what has happened during COVID is that information systems broke down completely. A lot of data which should have been collected could not be collected simply because it required people to go out and collect the data and because of COVID that was simply not possible. So disaster proofing the data systems I think should be a very high priority and we need to start thinking about it seriously because if we don't do it now then when the next disaster comes we'll be just as unprepared as we were this time around. Okay, so having a very resilient uh, information system is extremely important for us now to make the yeah, right decisions. So much, right? Yeah, yeah, Akshita, and it's so much more possible now, you know, because of information technology, building up uh, resilient uh, information systems is far easier than in the bad old days where you didn't even have telephone connectivity. Right. So, so it's possible and it's much needed and the pandemic has shown us that. So yeah. it's, it's time we start to build up on it and think uh, where India moves, what India moves towards in terms of having resilient information systems so that we can even make better policy decisions then and quick you know, policy it, decisions. It should, it should be because, you know, I don't think most people have an understanding of how complex our information systems are in this country. So every ministry of government of India has practically a separate independent information system. Every state government and their departments have their own information systems. And putting all of these together, you get an incredibly complex uh, network. So that entire network has to be made uh, disaster proof and much more resilient. So it's, it's not a trivial job. It's a huge, huge call uh, because every component has to be looked at and you know, built in to this larger network, uh, which we are thinking about. Okay. So also, sort of bringing all this data that is there, like different sort of data with different ministries, try to bring them, connect them and bring them under one umbrella is also something, uh, is that what you're indicating? No, that was already on the cards. Work was going on on that anyway. The point is that now you have to make sure that the, those data flows continue even under very adverse circumstances. Right. Okay. So you have to then look at the way that data is being generated and can you or can you not disaster proof them? All right. Yes, I get it now. <laughs> okay. So thank you so much for your time, sir. We at SPRF truly value it. And we also hope that um, we'll be able to have more such conversations with you in the future. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. I enjoyed it thoroughly. And I look forward to talking with you again.